It was the end of a great age in the story of humankind. 3,000 years ago, the flourishing and interconnected civilizations of the Mediterranean and Near East faced a climate catastrophe. Crops failed, drought ravaged the land, the Aegean was devastated by earthquakes of terrifying magnitude, and these environmental disasters had a social and political consequence. As bandits known as the Sea Peoples put cities to the flame, workers went on strike after their rations were cut, and once bustling international trades routes vanished. Within just a few short years, vibrant societies whose names are still remembered today were plunged into a dark age that lasted for generations. This rarely considered ancient history is a powerful reminder of the effect of climate to shape and determine the course of life and civilization. Unlike the collapse of late Bronze Age societies, the climate crisis we face in the 21st century originates from human activity. Hundreds of millions of people are likely to become climate migrants forced from their homelands by famines, droughts, and other ecological catastrophes. How can we make sense of the disaster of climate change? And what can we do to mitigate its worst effects? Is there hope if we act now? I'm Clara Bertrand, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast sharing ideas and insights for sharing and improving the modern world. In this episode, we explore the science behind the climate crisis and investigate possible solutions. In a special live event held in partnership with The Conduit, we welcome Sir David King, the former chief scientist advisor to the UK government and the chairman of the Centre for Climate Repair at the University of Cambridge. Sean Sutherland, the co-founder of A Plastic Planet, a global campaign aimed at reducing plastic pollution. And Ari Elginson, a climate technology investor who is passionate about finding and funding innovative solutions to the climate crisis. Their moderator was Christoph Court, head of philanthropy services at Big Day Wealth Management. So I'm going to dive straight in and throw my first question to you, Sir David. Explain it to us. Break it down. What is the nature of the challenge that we all face? It's an easy one to kick off. And how can we ensure ourselves of a more manageable future? I'm going to start with a very bold statement. What we do as humanity over the next five to ten years will determine the future of humanity for the next 2,000 years. And what I'm saying there is that our civilization is now very much at risk. It's a massive threefold challenge, and it, there's not one bit of the planet that's not affected. So the first is, over the North Pole now, we have warm air. So that warm sea creating warm air. The warm air is disturbing the entire wind system over the North Pole region. So. I'm going to try and avoid any scientific language. There's a wind that blows up in the stratosphere, 12 miles and plus up. There's a wind that blows around the North Pole in a very good circular direction. But as you come down, that wind still blows. We call it the jet stream, so in the atmosphere. That jet stream became so severely distorted during that summer 2021 that it was no longer circular, it was massively distorted. Some parts of the wind were going south-north, some were going north-south, 
and that got locked in down the west coast of America. When the cold air was pushed away by the North Pole hot air, it was pushed down into Central America. Dallas, Texas had snowfall, minus 16 degrees centigrade. Dallas, right? unheard of. Below zero degrees centigrade, unheard of. Talk about extreme weather events. And then along the, the west coast, not at the same time, but along the west coast, this jet stream got locked in for three weeks down that region. And that's why people were dying in that region. So what, what, what we're saying, first of all, these extreme weather events are driven by the, this massive change in the wind systems of the world driven by uh, the warming of the Arctic Sea. But let's look at Greenland. Greenland, how big is it? It's the size of Mexico. It's very close to the same size as Mexico. How much ice was sitting on it? Two to three kilometers of ice. So when all of that ice melts, global sea levels will rise by seven meters, 23 feet. Is all of that ice melting? I'm afraid the answer is yes. It's melting what appears to be irreversibly. Over the last 10 years, its average loss is half a meter a year. Right, so that, that is the current rate, and that rate is accelerating. Now, what does this mean for the whole planet, rising sea levels? People say, well, it's going to take 150 years for it all to melt, so should we worry now? Let me take you to one of the low-lying countries of the world, Vietnam, not often talked about. Yes, Bangladesh we often talk about, but Vietnam. 90% of the land mass of Vietnam if this continues, which it looks likely to, is going to be under seawater at least once a year. 90% of the landmass, this is the third biggest rice producer in the world. And once the land has been salinated, rice production will be extraordinarily difficult. But across the water from them, Indonesia, the same story. This archipelago, a lot of the rice paddy fields are very close to sea level. Right, so we're talking about a massive challenge, not only to living space for human beings, Yes, a great deal of migration will have to occur for those people who can no longer live in those places. Um, but it's also food production for the whole world at risk. Let me just move on from rising sea levels and rising and changing uh, weather systems to the permafrost. The permafrost contains enough methane. And what I have to tell you is that methane is about 130 times more powerful per molecule as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So we should be worried about methane. There's enough methane there that if it was all released into the atmosphere over a 20-year period, global temperatures average would rise by between 6 and 8 degrees centigrade. Global average temperatures rising by that amount. Now, is that likely to happen? Frankly, I don't know. But already in northern Siberia, there's explosive release of methane. And that explosive release of methane is leaving great cavities in the permafrost, measuring 50 meters diameter, 70 meters deep. The second part of your question I haven't even touched on. What do we do? And the Center for Climate Repair at Cambridge has set out, pinching this from the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, three R's. What we're saying is, Yes, deep and rapid emissions reduction, no argument. We must achieve that as quickly as possible. 
stop using fossil fuels as quickly as possible. But the second thing is we need to remove excess greenhouse gases that are up there. It's the excess greenhouse gases we've already got up in the atmosphere that are causing this drastic actions occurring in the Arctic Circle region. And the third thing is we have to learn, and this I know will bring a, a smile to your faces as something impossible, we have to learn how to refreeze the Arctic to buy time while we reduce emissions and remove excess greenhouse gases. So up at Cambridge, we have a set of global consortia working on how we can achieve the refreezing of the Arctic. And we're also working on how to remove greenhouse gases. And we're looking at how we can remove greenhouse gases at very low cost, if not zero cost, and at the same time remove tens of billions of greenhouse gases a year from the atmosphere. San, I want to move over to you. Plastic, plastic.com, plastic-free. What role does plastic play in all of this? Well, it's quite hard following David, isn't it? You just think, uh, and I'm used to being the Debbie Downer, let me tell you. But, but that, was, that was heavy stuff. But we've got to hear these things now. And I think we think we know that there's a problem. But are we really, really listening? Are we really understanding the magnitude, the speed of what is happening? Because you will find, trust me, when you go to dinner parties now and you mention half of the things that you've just learned tonight, people don't want to hear it. And why are we still in this place of denial when it's something that is going to impact not just our children and our children's children, but it's actually going to impact us, our generation now, in a way that we had never, ever imagined? Because what I also hear from the scientists is it's happening so much faster than we ever predicted. So that said, just to support everything that you're saying, let me turn to uh, my normal Debbie Downer subject of plastic and why I think it has such a relevance in this big picture of the climate crisis. Why, in fact, I think it is the canary in the coal mine of the climate crisis and is so intrinsically connected. So I'll give you a provocation that perhaps the plastic crisis is a gift. It is that little tap on the shoulder to all of us to say, hey, mankind, you've gone down the wrong road here. You've gone down this toxic cul-de-sac, becoming addicted to this indestructible material, fossil fuel-based material, that has actually been responsible for so much above and beyond the visible plastic that we see. So I can talk to you, of course, about the imperative of why we have to stop plastic because of the impact on the environment. We all talk about the oceans. Many of you will have seen Blue Planet 2 when the world woke up. But it's so much more insidious in our lives than just a bit of ocean pollution, or as the, the plastics industry would like you to call it, marine litter, like it's something somebody accidentally dropped off the side of a boat. Plastic is everywhere. There is not an inch of our beautiful, incredible home that we haven't infected with this material. It is in the deep ice of Antarctica. It's six miles deep in the Mariana Trench. It's in every glass of this delicious wine that we're drinking tonight. It's in the food that we ate. It is in every lungful of air that we breathe in. We know way too much of the plastic planet about the impact on human health. We're part of the Plastic Health Coalition, this extraordinary umbrella of organization of all the environmental toxicologists, doctors and scientists, who are working on the irrefutable proof of the impact on human health. And trust me, 
it is coming like a juggernaut of corporate risk for the people that continue to insist that plastic is the only material they can use on their production lines. Men's fertility, women's cancers, there is plastic in placenta now, there's plastic in our blood. So we have a, a health imperative. Luckily, we're an incredibly selfish species. So if we're only going to fix the plastic crisis because of the impact on us and our kids, then we've got that imperative now looming very large. But the other reason that I am personally obsessed as a serial entrepreneur, and the one thing you didn't mention was the fact I co-founded and ran a skincare brand for 10 years. So can you imagine how many plastic bottles I personally pumped out into the environment? The other problem that we have is the natural resource that is available to us. Some of you may have heard of Earth Overshoot Day. Every single year, we take more natural resources than we are entitled to. So we're literally taking natural resource from the planet, we're taking it from our children's future, making stuff with it, and then giving it a nice little name like growth or GDP. So the other thing that's going to happen when we fix the plastic crisis is that we will also look at these systemic changes that mean we take less resource, that we embed more true circularity, that we work with nature in a way that we never have before by not toxifying everything that we then give back to nature. So for me, long answer to your question of why I think the plastic crisis is such an important topic is it's a brilliant gateway that if we focus for us as an organization on that one thing and we don't get distracted by anything else, all the important things that obviously David knows so much more about, but if we just focus on that, then I think the impact that we could have could be absolutely extraordinary. Over to you, Ari. So you, you left Inlet's Ventures last year, I believe it was, to set up this new firm, this new venture fund transition that focuses purely on, on climate change and, and the ecology crisis, the ecological crisis. Can you tell us a bit about why you did that? I mean, I think the, the answer is clear from these two conversations, but for you, what was it that made you, made you make that transition? Yeah, so I don't need to talk about the problem. I think it's pretty clear what the problem is and, and beyond the climate crisis and the problems we have around plastic, there are huge issues around chemical pollutants in the environment and fundamentally unsustainable ways of doing things. And so we've been kind of mortgaging the future uh, to drive growth. And I'm convinced that there is a better way and that that way is through technology. Because it just so happens that we don't, as human beings, respond very well to, you know, doom and gloom, belt tightening rhetoric. You know, we have to uh, use less, consume less. Uh, all of that is true to some extent. But we also have to find ways of, you know, driving a high quality of life and providing, you know, people with food, shelter, housing, clothing in a way that's fundamentally sustainable. And that's where new technologies come in. And what gives me a lot of hope and more than a glimmer of optimism is seeing the incredible entrepreneurs that are out there every day kind of working on new technologies, taking stuff out of the lab, taking stuff out of research centers and turning it into products that you can actually deploy and, and scale. And the first kind of insight I had into this was seeing uh, one of my brother's Ingvar, who has a company called Vitro Labs, which is growing lab-grown leather um, that he founded in 2017. So this is a way of 
you're making very high quality luxury grade leather with minimal ecological impact. Uh, and for me, that was a kind of light bulb moment where I thought, well, if we could direct capital to you know, a thousand more companies like his that are working on ways of you know, building great products, providing uh, for you know, the needs of the planet in a sustainable way, maybe we have a shot at, at solving these problems. And so I see my role in this uh, to be to find, nurture, and back the entrepreneurs that are working on deploying real solutions to the climate crisis. And I think if we direct enough resources there, it's not the capital that's going to do it, it's the entrepreneurs and the people working in these companies and the scientists and engineers that are actually making it happen. But capital is a way to direct you know, productive human energy towards particular problems. The Arctic is a realm of rugged beauty and untamed power, and at its heart lives a creature of breathtaking majesty, the polar bear. According to the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species, their population is projected to decline by 30% over the next 45 years. The polar bear has come to symbolize global warming and the climate crisis. But the threat of human activity to life on Earth extends far beyond this one magnificent animal. One million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction. But there is hope. By reducing our carbon footprint, preserving wildlife habitats, and being exceedingly mindful of our impact on the environment, we have the power to prevent such devastating biodiversity loss. So Dave, I want to go back to you. You, you talked a bit about the approach of the CCRC uh, around reduce, remove, reuse. Uh, re <laughs> I got them in the wrong, wrong order, repair. Can you talk a little bit about that in a bit more detail about how that actually works? I don't need to say too much about reduce. That's all about defossilizing our economy. It's about no longer removing trees, etc. Let's go to the remove side of it, which is removing excess greenhouse gases. How can we do that at scale? And what we're working on is 72% of the world's surface that most people are not at all focused on, which is the oceans. Uh, the blue whale population is down at less than 1% of what it used to be before we started catching whales for their blubber. This was the first oil discovery, was, was taking out virtually all the baleen whales that they could catch. They have a lot of blubber because, for example, the blue whale lives on krill and they catch krill 300 to 500 meters below the surface of the sea. And so they have to have a lot of blubber because that water is very cold down there. Uh, fortunately for them, the krill is a sociable animal. So maybe a, a family of krill might be a billion krill, and they just sail through it with open mouths. Uh, and occasionally they come up for air, not as often as you might think, enormous animals, enormous lungs. And we all know they come up for air, blow the old air out, etc. But what else do they have to do? When they're down there, their orifices are jammed shut by the high pressure of the water. So they also relieve themselves. And so this is part of the old circular economy, which you were referring to. Right? They're eating the fresh krill and then coming up and depositing their waste in the sunlit area of the ocean. And that causes a great big area of green phytoplankton. 
Phytoplankton is the initial foodstuff of every ocean-going fish. So <clears throat> when the fish larvae hatch from the eggs, if there's no phytoplankton around, they die. They have to have phytoplankton. So as soon as you come across an area of phytoplankton, maybe a pot of whales have produced an area with this waste covering thousands of square kilometers, that green area becomes alive with fish. Now we removed a big fraction of the whales. And so simple idea we had was, why don't we just make artificial whale poo and spread it on the surface of the ocean? Now we have to float it on the surface so that it's very effective. What are we using as a float? Uh, our little rafts are the husks from rice. So this all started in Goa where there's a, an enormous rice factory. A vast amount of rice husks are produced and they're part of the throwaway product. We're now baking the, this at very low temperature, baking it, and it becomes a little floating raft. And we put the artificial whale poo on the floating raft. And of course, we can get a nice green area. So obviously, we need to work hard. We're working with people in every major ocean of the world. And we're hoping to send experimental vessels out. We've already had one vessel going out last year. And if we can raise enough money, we will be sending these vessels out to test this in, in the oceans of the world. So we're, we're analyzing the nutrients in the surface of the ocean. So we don't want to waste time producing nutrients that are already there. And in different parts of the ocean, there are different missing nutrients. And so we do tie the nutrients to what we're looking at there. So I think th this has the possibility of removing something like more than two to three billion tons a year, and perhaps 10 billion tons of greenhouse gases a year, if we were able to cover two to three percent of the world's ocean surface every year in the way I've described. I believe that if we do this, the baleen whale population will regrow, and then we can sit back and let them do it as long as we ban whaling. Right, so there's, there's the, the second R. And the third R, I'll say this one very much more quickly. White clouds reflect sunlight away from the surface of the Earth. If you are underneath a white cloud, it's going to be cooler than if the cloud isn't shading you. And it's a very big difference. So what we want to do is cover the Arctic Circle region with white clouds for the three polar summer months, only for those three months. We create white clouds again by looking at nature. In nature, how does a cloud form above the ocean? Bit of a storm, crashing waves, and you get tiny droplets of ocean water. Each droplet contains one crystal of salt. And as the droplet is raised up in the atmosphere, during the day when the sea is warmed by the ocean, the wind carries them up, and as they're carried up by the wind, they lose the water vapor. So each droplet becomes a little salt crystal. If the salt crystal is less than, is invisible, what you still see is this salt cloud hovering, picking up water vapor, and it becomes a white cloud. Right, so what we, all we have to do is create 
the right size of ocean droplets, create them, spray them on above the ocean, and they'll be carried up by the draft. And that's what we're working on. Thank you. Sean, back, back to you. you. You touched upon the work of a plastic planet and the simple task of getting the world to stop using plastic. That's no simple task. How, how are you going about that? To start with, I think it is nothing to do with the consumer. I think that for too long now, the blame for plastic, particularly the likes of Coca-Cola, just thinking, if only they could put it in the right recycling bin, if only people wouldn't buy the plastic in the first place, it's nothing to do with the consumer. Yes, of course, we have a certain level of personal responsibility. If people are selling me something different, I should buy it. But industry's job is to sell us something better. We will buy something better if it is made available to us. And government's job and the UN's job is to mandate that industry sell us something better. And we should really be questioning, I think, as consumers, why, when we know what we know now, is it still legal to sell us the wrong thing? So that's a, that's a fundamental, really, is that, number one, it's nothing to do with the consumer. And you will not be surprised to hear that, with my background as an entrepreneur, I believe passionately in business is the tool of change. And we have to work with business. And if we want to see change happen at scale and at speed, then it has to work for business, not just work with business, but it has to work for business. And we've touched earlier on the fact that there is tremendous opportunity here. And that's something that I feel often we feel we're trapped into a corner and it's all doom and gloom and I'll just go and click buy now on Amazon and get that little dopamine here because there's nothing else I can do, it's all hopeless. And actually, there is an amazing opportunity for an incredible reinvention, a renaissance of us making things, living in a very, very different way. So at A Plastic Planet, we work with industry and we work with governments. So we get involved in things like, you know, some of you may know that there is a UN Global Plastics Treaty that is being negotiated right now. And this is, you know, 197 countries have said we all want to have a legally binding mandate on plastic, unlike the Paris Agreement, which of course was entirely voluntary, which is why we're not hitting any targets. Um, so we work on things like the UN Plastic Treaty, we work with, with DEFRA on a much more ambitious plastic strategy for, for the UK. And then we largely work with industry, because if we want to see change happen, then yes, we can call on things being banned by the government, and we live in a libertarian society where we don't like to ban things. But the thing about banning something is as soon as you ban something, you create a vacuum, and in that vacuum, you see the green shoots of innovation. And right now, we haven't bothered to innovate anything because plastic's so incredible. I mean, look at it. It's like the most wonderful material. Man invented something that lives forever. Who dreamt that we could do that? And what do we do? We make straws out of it. We, we're so ridiculous. We should have venerated it, put it on a pillar, priced it like gold, only used it for things that we need to last forever. That's where it fundamentally went wrong. So we need to ban more things, create these green shoots of innovation, so that this extraordinary amount of opportunity with the bioeconomies, the new biomaterials. So we call for bans and then we work with industry. So for example, we had a campaign some year and a half ago, impeccable timing actually, just as COVID broke. Um, we launched a campaign called Sack the Sachet because we, we produce a trillion plastic sachets globally. 189 times to the moon and back is just one year's production of plastic sachets. 
So we launched this campaign when surely we had realized that we need to do, we need to work with nature and not against her. And then whilst calling for a ban in the UK government, we also worked with people like Kraft Heinz. The most probably famous uh, plastic sachet is the Heinz tomato ketchup sachet. And here we are now, 18 months in, and we have five different solutions that are going into production trials, bringing together combinations of materials that Kraft Heinz had never been able to work with before. Because all we do at A Plastic Planet is focus on solutions. Pressure industry from the top with things like, obviously, the the corporate risk of, of human health, but also new legislation and the UN Plastics Treaty, but then help industry change by bringing them solutions. Ari, can you talk a bit about the, the what? What, what, are you, what are you looking for in the companies that you invest in, the ideas you invest in? So the important thing for us is that everything we invest in, every company we back has to have massive potential for scale. And so... We're looking for companies that can be great businesses and that will have as an intrinsic part of growing as a business a positive impact on the environment. And so we use a framework. Everyone has their own framework. You put you know, 10 climate tech investors in a room and you'll get 12 different frameworks. But the one we use is called the Planetary Boundaries Framework, which we think is a fa fairly sensible way of looking at it. It comes from the Stockholm Resilience Center and it covers the nine planetary systems that need to be in balance and healthy for us to have a livable planet. And the reason we look at it in that way is that it's very important to think about natural systems as you know, connected, and it's also important to not kind of go all in on decarbonization, carbon removal at the expense of other areas like land use or uh, biodiversity, etc. So by having this framework that covers a number of natural systems, we're able to kind of reason through the potential impact of the companies we back. Um, and so to give you an example, we work with a company called Running Tide that does restoration of ocean ecosystems and carbon removal through uh, kelp-based farming in the oceans. And so there, we're looking at you know, both the impact that it has on ocean deacidification, um, carbon removal, um, and also uh, restoration of ocean ecosystems. And so they have kind of three different positive environmental impacts that we're tracking. And so it's very important that the uh, businesses and technologies we work with have kind of as an intrinsic part of their scaling journey some beneficial impact on the environment. We're then looking at these being able to build great businesses. And so we'll, I think we'll get onto the philanthropic piece in a bit. But if these companies are to grow to massive scale to where they can either remove you know, gigatons of uh, greenhouse gases from the atmosphere or you know, restore ecosystems um, in other ways, they have to be sustainable businesses that can attract investors that don't care about the environmental impact. That's kind of the goal. We want the customers to buy the products regardless of whether they care about the environmental impact. And we want investors to be able to back these companies as great businesses um, that will deliver great financial returns. And so we're looking for good financial profiles, sustainability, scalability in business models and in the financial profile. And so that's really the kind of dual uh, underwriting process that we go through at transition. We're looking at 
intrinsic environmental impact as part of the company scaling. And we're looking at, can this be a great you know, business that can stand on its own feet and become an iconic company in its industry? Considering who we have in the room, philanthropists, investors, business owners, what one takeaway, maybe two takeaways, would you want them to walk out of this room with tonight? And I'll open ask that whoever would like to go first. Shall I dive in first and take all the time? Great. I just want to tell a tiny little story. When I, when I was seven years old, I had a book called The Book of Tomorrow. And that book was extraordinary to me. I used to read it every night, and it just showed this picture of a future that was incomprehensible to me with flying little jets and bubbles and flat screen TVs and all of those things. And then later, as a family, we used to sit down and watch Tomorrow's World. I don't know if anybody what used to watch Tomorrow's World. Where is that program now? And, but I, I would go to sleep at night. I couldn't wait to wake up in the future. I couldn't wait to get there because it was such an exciting prospect to me. My sons don't have that future to dream of. And I, I feel now, the reason I do what I do now, and I haven't set up another business you know, as an entrepreneur, but my obsession with doing what I do now is because I feel an absolute responsibility as the generation that made this mess largely to create a picture of a very different future for my kids, for everybody else's kids. So I think the only message that I would like to leave everybody with right now is I've just heard that, that bell so loud in my ear of five years. So what are we doing tomorrow that really, really matters when we've only got five years? How much impact are we going to do with every single penny that we spend, that we own? Because when you say, let's save it for a rainy day, it's raining. The way to think about the scale of the effort that's needed is if you look at, you know, great kind of breakthrough endeavors like, you know, the Manhattan Project or the moon landing, you know, we need uh, resources and human ingenuity on the scale of tens, if not a hundred times those. And so everyone needs to be part of the solution and we need everyone to think about kind of how can you change your procurement practices in your business? How can you change your consumption habits? How can you help put pressure on policymakers and decision makers? Uh, because this is not just a business problem. It's a collective action problem. It's a policy problem. It's a capital allocation problem. How are you making investments? You know, always think about the, this angle when you're making these big decisions. And, you know, if we really focus and, and, and we really put the resources behind it, it is achievable. Uh, time is running out, but there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of solutions out there. Each one of us is a part of the problem. And all I can say is that is because we have all been very short term in our thinking. And I just beg you, as you go away, to think about the decade problem. I mentioned Vietnam, because by mid-century, that's less than 30 years from now, there's another country hitting crisis point. We're talking about the mid-term future. It's not 100 years away. It's right there for our children and my grandchildren. Thank you so much for sharing everything you've shared. And beyond that, as a father, thank you for everything you're doing to, to build them a world that they can live in. Thank you.
This episode of Founding Conversation featured Sir David King, Sean Sutherland, and Ari Helgensen. The host was Christoph Court. The show is a collaboration between Picte, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and the How To Academy, London's leading public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christodoulou. We have help from Nal Moran and Nicole Wong. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>